All right, well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I hope you do. Go ahead and grab it. Make your way to John 18, John 18. And if you are a guest, again, we're thrilled that you're here. Uh, we're glad that you're here to, to hear from God's Word. If you're new to the whole Bible thing, uh, there's 66 books that make up this one book called the Bible. And we're in the book of John, which is towards the right side. And we're in John 18. That's the big number that you'll see there. And the little numbers in the text, those are the verses. We're going to be in John 18, uh, verse 28 is where we're going to begin today. Now, what's incredible about this is this is, the I think, the 34th week that we have spent in the Gospel of John. It's been an amazing book as we've looked page after page and chapter after chapter, all getting to this whole point that we'll see in a few weeks where John writes, this was written that you would believe and that you would live, that you would believe and have life and have it abundantly. So every story, every chapter comes down to this. What do we need to believe? And as we believe, how does that give us life in Christ? So as we've been reading through it, if you were here last week, you remember that Jesus is in an in a, in a odd, weird, difficult time. Jesus right now has been betrayed by uh, one of his disciples. Uh, one of his disciples, the number one disciple, has denied him. Jesus has been arrested been falsely accused and falsely tried in the middle of the night. And these people that wanted to uh, crucify and kill Jesus realized they don't have the ability to do that. So they're like, how are we going to do this? Like, what's the next step for us in order to get rid of this Jesus who threatens our kingdom and our power and our authority? So that's the context. That's the setting. And we pick up in verse 28. Then they led Jesus. That's the group of people that want to get rid of Jesus, be done with him because he threatens their kingdom. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, that's the high priest, to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's house so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover meal. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill the word which Jesus had spoken to show by the kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew. Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. My kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king, and for this purpose I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in this man. But you have a custom that you should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man. But Barabbas, now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of God. Pray with me this morning. Lord, 
we come to you. And we ask is that when we read your word, that you would help us to understand it. Because we know apart from your spirit, we can't. So would you please help remove distractions? Would you help us to understand and appreciate your word that was written and preserved throughout the centuries? And I ask that even as we come to a very familiar passage that you would make it fresh to us this morning. Now let me give you a time of silence to pray and ask that God would speak to you through his word this morning too. Would you pray right now to him? Jesus, your word tells us that this was written, it was inspired by you, it was penned, that we would believe in you and have abundant life. And so we ask according to your desire that we would believe and live this morning and that we would live in that abundant life this week to the glory of your name and your kingdom. Amen. Amen. All right, this passage really highlights the kingship of Christ. Verse after verse, you're going to see the kingship of our Messiah is, is in focus. I want us to grasp this and understand it by looking at three realities of our king. And the first reality is this. King Jesus is in control through the chaos. King Jesus is in control through the chaos. And let's not miss this. This is chaos, this time is chaotic. It's crazy what's happening. I mean, remember, last week, Jesus was arrested. He was tried at night, which never should have happened. And here we are, it says in verse 28, that it was early morning. And not only has there been this crazy trial, Jesus has been up all night. Jesus has had the weight of the world and, and carrying the sins of the world on his shoulders and his friends have deserted him and abandoned him. This is a chaotic time. Very chaotic. And this chaos comes to the doorstep of Pilate. And it says it's early in the morning. So let that settle in. Pilate is probably just waking up. Pilate probably hasn't had his cup of coffee yet to get him going. Okay? And you got a mob of people outside of your office, right? that are declaring that you should kill this man. It's chaos. And yet what we find is Christ is in control of this. There's a, there's a sense of calmness that we find on the face of Christ. Now I'm surprised that Pilate didn't shut all this down. He could have. But as he looks at this mob out there and he's trying to you know, get the sleepers out of his eyes as he wakes up, he probably looks at him and he's like, all right, let's come in. Let's, let's talk about what's going on. But the text tells us that this crowd won't even come into his house, won't even come into the headquarters. <laughs> this is a man of authority and reputation in the Roman government, and they look at him and they're like, nope, we're not coming in because if we come in to your house, we'll be defiled. I mean, that's pretty abrasive. <laughs> it's pretty offensive. And they're not talking about Pilate's house is messy, like there's pizza crumbs laying around, and there's roaches running all over the place. That's not why they would be defiled if they walked into his house. The reason why they wouldn't walk into the house is not because of the, the way the house was set up, but because of who owned the house and the man who was in it. That's offensive. And they're not looking as 
at, at, at Pilate as somebody who is guilty of sin and shame like they are. No, they're like, we're better than you, Pilate, and we're not going in there. Because that will defile us, and we want to be allowed to do all of our, our religious activities that we want to do with Passover, which we'll get to here in a minute. And so we can't, can't go in there. Now, this is not a law that God gave in his word. You're not going to turn through the Old Testament and find this law that you can't go into a Gentile's house because it will defile you. It was a man-made law. It was a religious law. And what breaks my heart is that these men would rather break a man-made law than God's law. They are breaking God's law over and over and over again while holding on to the man-made law. God had said, do not murder, and they seek to murder someone. Do not lie, and here they are lying about Christ. They are breaking one after the other of the Ten Commandments. I mean, they're coveting, wanting their kingdom and their way to happen. This is what's happening. It's a sad moment. And yet, Pilate overlooks their offense, and he's like, fine, you don't have to come into the house. But what accusation do you bring against this man? What accusation? Jesus still is controlled. He's not speaking out of turn. He's not speaking rashly. He's not accusing these people of the things that they have done wrong, although he could. Hey, they put me on trial last night. It was a false trial. They couldn't find anything wrong with me. Jesus is calm and collected in the midst of this moment. Why? Verse 32 tells us, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus has self-control in the midst of chaos. All of this chaos is going around him, and yet he can control his mouth. He's even controlling the situation, verse 32 tells us, because Christ is the king in control, even through the chaos. Even through the chaos. Now, the, the Jewish people, they, they would stone people at times, but that wasn't gruesome enough. That wasn't bad enough for him. So they're wanting to, to insult Christ and raise him up for everybody to see. This is what they're wanting to do. They're wanting everybody to look around and see the Christ on the cross. So they're like, see, this man's dead. Everybody needs to see and know. Now what they're trying to do is honestly against the will of God, and yet Christ is in control and he's working through it. He says, I'm going to die in this way. He said multiple times when we looked at it, I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be pierced for your transgressions. And this is all a quote from what has been said in the Old Testament. The promises and the prophecy. See, the prophecy didn't say that the Messiah was going to come and be stoned in our place. No, he would be pierced. His hands and his feet would be pierced for our transgressions. Jesus is saying, I've already agreed with all of that. All of this is happening to fulfill what has been said in the Old Testament as well as what I've said. Why? Because I am in control. I am in control. And I love that John puts verse 32 in here. I love that he puts verse 32 because this is kind of like a pause in the midst of this, this whole situation, this whole moment. And what he says is basically to the reader, to us today, he's like, come here. Come here, lean in for a minute. I've got to tell you something. I've got to whisper something in your ear. Hey, guys. Don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, this is not an accident. It's not a random act of violence that's going on. This is a purposeful time. This is intentional. 
the sovereign creator of the universe, has ordained all of this to bring about redemption for us. Don't forget it. Don't get lost thinking that this is a terrible, wicked act, although it is. This terrible, wicked act was done to bring about salvation and to bring about redemption. Christ is not out of control in this chaos. He is firmly in control has already said this was going to happen. He had already spoken it. He had Babe Ruth it and called his shot. John's saying, look, look at how in control this king is. Look at how in control this king is. And he's not just in control of the situation. He's in control of himself. If we look back, remember, last week, this is all in the same 24-hour period. The, the night before is what we looked at last week. He's been put on trial. He's been falsely accused. And then in verse 22, we see the control of Christ again. It says, when they had said all these things, when he had said all these things, an officer standing there struck Jesus with his hand. Struck Jesus with his hand. Wow. For the very first time in human history, for the very first time in human history, a created human fist strikes the creator. Think about the irony of that and how much self-control that must have taken Jesus to not respond back, although he's mightier, though he's more powerful. He takes that strike. He takes these false words of accusation against him, and he controls himself. If you were to put yourself in Jesus' shoes, I, I, don't, I don't think I could have had the same self-control. Many of you right now, if you put yourself in that, you're in the middle of the night, you've been falsely accused, you've been arrested, you've been beaten, you're tired, you're exhausted, you're probably hungry by this moment, and then somebody punches you in the face. I mean, every guy in this room, we could take a vote and be like, yeah, I'm going to attack back. Like, he punched me first, like, we're going to go forward, right? But Christ has self-control, and he doesn't. Even on a good day, in the middle of the day with a full belly, if somebody punches you in your face, you're going to want to respond to them. And here's Christ in the middle of the night, being falsely accused, betrayed, abandoned by his friends. He gets struck in the face and he has the self-control to compose himself. How in the world does Christ do that? I believe he has the self-control because he has a greater purpose. He knows that there's something bigger at stake than just responding to a man who struck him in his face. There's a much greater forgiveness that needs to happen than just forgiving this guy for punching him in the face. He knows that there's a world that is lost in need of a savior. A world that needs to live and have abundant life and live, right? He knows that. And so he knows that there's some good that's worth fighting for. And so he's going to have self-control in this time in order to praise and glorify his Father in heaven. He knows there's a greater kingdom. He knows that there's a greater kingdom. And so his actions are shaped by that greater kingdom. He's allowed to control himself because he knows he's investing in something that's far, far more important than just this moment and this strike and this accusation. Church, the challenge I would have for us is that we need to understand there's a greater kingdom that we live for. There's a greater king that shapes us. 
And if we're going to have the self-control to reflect our king, it's going to have to have a right understanding of his kingdom. To understand that it's a better kingdom than anything this world has to offer. And so, yes, we will take sacrifices. Yes, we'll take deductions and pay. Yes, we'll be willing to lose our job. Whatever it would be because there's something greater and better that's in play here. And Christ, every day, has given you and I moments, moments to spend and to use for his kingdom. For his kingdom. My kids love playing with Legos right now. We'll go to bed at night, I'm putting them in bed, and they will literally have a pile of Legos in the middle of their floor, which bothers me, right? That's just waiting to be stepped on. Uh, but a pile of Legos in the middle of the floor, and it'll look something like this. And by the time I wake up and get them up in the next morning, they will have built something with those Legos. They'll take each one of those pieces, they'll connect them, and they'll put them together a piece at a time, a piece at a time, and a piece at a time. By the time I get them up, they've built a zoo, or they've built a castle, or they've built a boat. They've built something with those Legos. Now, I'll tell you that because you and I are a lot like a kid with an enormous mountain of Lego pieces. We're all building a kingdom. We're all building something. You and I wake up every single day, and we sit on a huge pile of pieces called minutes and hours and days and years. They're called abilities and talents and interests. They're called resources and experiences and friendships. These pieces are called family members. Every part of our life has these different pieces. The question is, what are we doing with them? What are we doing? Are we leveraging each one of these pieces, each minute, each hour, each day, to build our own kingdom? Or to build a better kingdom? The one with the perfect and true king, King Jesus. Are we allowing our lives to be self Control to use each one of these moments of time to the glory of Christ. Now, this application point revolves around self-control because you and I have to be intentional to build these pieces or it will never happen. We might build something, but it will be our own kingdom. It won't be towards the kingdom of Christ. We have to live with self-control, looking at every one of these pieces, every one of these resources God has given us, saying, how can I glorify God in my family? How can I glorify God in my singleness? How can I glorify God in the church? How do I glorify God in my work? Each one of these are pieces that we have to be self-controlled to use to glorify God. I find it fascinating if you turn to the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd, Timothy, and Titus. Paul is writing to the churches, and he looks and he's telling each one of these different people within the church, this is how you should live. These are things, qualities of a deacon, qualities of an elder, Qualities of a faithful follower of Christ. Qualities of a good Christian man and a good Christian woman. And if you read those different lists of qualities that we should aspire to, one thing that you will find that goes through each and every one of them is this. Self-control. Self-control. Why? Why is that the one thing that gets reiterated over and over and over again that we have to have self-control? Because we live in a world that would tell us, you live for your kingdom. You live for you. Whatever feels good for you, you do that. 
Don't sacrifice for somebody else. If that doesn't feel good for you to sacrifice, then don't. Do what you want to do. This is something that continues to permeate our culture. This is what guides our views on sexuality. This is what guides our views on identity. This is what guides our way of spending money. All of this is do what makes you happy. And yet when you turn the pages of Scripture, what you see over and over again is a call for us not to self-indulge, but to be self-controlled. To be self-controlled, building not our kingdom, but Christ's kingdom. Not that our will would be done, but that His will be done. And His name would be glorified. And in this moment, this is what Christ is reflecting for you and I. It's reflecting the truth that there is a better kingdom and it's worthy of our life and worth every piece of our time to invest in it. So would we control ourselves, spend our time rightly, spend our words rightly? And the only way that we're able to do this is that we first look to Christ. We look to Christ, the one who came to rescue us from our selfishness and our sin. And when he rescues us, he empowers us to live as he lived to take up our cross and to follow him daily. You might think, why would I want to live in, in this, kind of, uh, this kind of attitude or this world? I mean, it seems like we're giving up a lot. Yeah, but what we get is so much better. We don't follow Christ because he makes our life better, but because he's better than life itself. This is why we are self-controlled. This is why we live for the king in this way. We don't just see the self-controlled nature of our king in this passage. We also see that King Jesus is the truth in our confusion. He's our, our truth in our confusion. There's not just chaos here, but there's confusion here. Pilate's confused about what in the world is going on. Why are all these people so mad? And why are they screaming he's the king of the Jews? The reason why they're mentioning that Jesus is the king of the Jews is because they know there's no law in Rome to say that you can't sit, claim that you're God. I mean, people might look at you and say you're crazy, but they're not going to incarcerate you. And they know that. So they're like, no, 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 we're not saying that he's, uh, he's saying he's God. No, he's saying he's king. He's king of the Jews, and we can't have this, Pilate. This falls underneath your jurisdiction. And Jesus, in the midst of chaos is still going to speak truth, to bring clarity to the eyes of Pilate, to bring clarity. And I love, I love what happens here. Pilate comes in and he starts the interrogation and he asks the question, verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus does what he does throughout the entire gospel over and over again. Somebody comes to him and asks him a question. And Jesus takes their question, puts it in his bow, and aims it right at their heart. And he shoots the question right back at Pilate, aiming at his heart. Not in aggression, but in love. So Jesus, in verse 34, answers his question by saying, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Now I believe what's happening here is Jesus is honestly making an appeal even for the heart of Pilate. He asked the question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus is like, Pilate, are you asking because somebody else said that? Or are you actually asking for your own heart? 
because if you're really asking, this is a whole different conversation. And if you're asking if I'm the king, I'll gladly answer that for you. But what I'm going for is your heart, not to get out of this trial. Now what Pilate does is he quickly turns away from Christ's comment or question. And in verse 35, he's like, okay, 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 just tell me what you've done. Just tell me what you've done, Jesus. And Jesus, again, is making an appeal to Pilate. He's bringing the truth of the gospel in the midst of Pilate's confusion. He's bringing this truth of who he is to bring clarity to Pilate's eyes and mind. And Pilate quickly moves past and says, okay, okay, just tell me what you've done. And Jesus is going to circle back to that point again. And he's going to tell him the truth that Jesus is the true king. And in verse 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate's response to that is, oh, so you're saying you are a king. You are a king. When Jesus talks about his kingdom, and he says his kingdom is not of this world, once again, I believe he's making an appeal to Pilate and ultimately to us. See, Christ through the start of his ministry, has been preaching the kingdom has come. The kingdom is here. If you remember, back when we studied Mark, I guess several years ago now, the first sermon that Christ ever preached, his words were, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. He's calling for change. Would you turn from building your own kingdom in your own way and get clarity Get perspective that there's something better to live for. There's a true king whose kingdom does not rise and fall based off an economy. It cannot be shaken. It is founded deeply in eternity. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is a better kingdom. It's a kingdom that is not of this world. It's not like Rome. It's not like America. It's not like these kingdoms. It's a better kingdom that will never be shaken. So Christ talks about his kingdom again. Just like his first sermon where he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Here, he's basically telling Pilate the same thing. My kingdom's not of this world, Pilate. The king's here. The king's standing before you. But he's not going to build your kingdom. He's asking you to be a part of his kingdom. Jesus says, I have come to bear witness to this truth. Pilate says, are you a king? Jesus is like, Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's why I was born. I was born to be a king who would give the truth so that you could believe and live. And Jesus is very particular with his words in verse 37. At least I believe. I believe Jesus is intentional with all his words. But I love that Jesus says in verse 37 that he came to bear witness to the truth. The truth. Jesus doesn't say, I came to bear witness to whatever your truth is. And he came to bear witness to whatever my truth is, because truth is just relative. No, there is one truth, and it is founded in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus in John 14 said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All truth flows back to him. It's all based on his work and his life and his person. Jesus is making a bold statement here. And then he says at the end of verse 37, you're in the truth. If you listen to my voice. Why? Because he's speaking truth. He's speaking truth. And when he mentions listen here, this is a listen with action. With action. 
that we listen to his voice and we respond to that truth. This is what he's calling. He's calling again for Pilate to look to him. Look, I'm speaking truth. If you want to walk in this truth, then listen to my voice right now. And sadly, sadly in verse 38, what do you see Pilate's response? What is truth? And he doesn't even stay to hear Jesus' answer. He doesn't want to listen to the voice of Christ. He doesn't want to listen to the voice of truth. And if you and I are not extremely careful, then we will drift to the exact same place. Just like Pilate, we will choose in action because we think that this truth doesn't apply to us or isn't relevant to us. Jesus might apply to other people, but this truth doesn't apply or affect me in any way. We think maybe this truth is just some good fodder for our small group. We'll talk about the different truths of Christ and never apply it to our lives. We'll never deal with the truth of God. We'll hear it and assume that God wants us to discuss it instead of apply it. So many people stumble over the truth. They hear it. They stumble over it. Most people will pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and hurry on like nothing ever happened. But I urge you, plead with you, that when you read God's word, when you hear God's truth, instead of being like Pilate and just saying, like, why does this matter? What is, this, what is the truth anyway? Instead, let us ask, how do I need to respond to this truth? There are truth upon truth upon truth in the pages of Scripture. Let me get really practical just for a moment with this. When we hear the truth of Christ speak, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Of all nations. What are you going to do with that? I've heard people within church tell me before, that whole nations thing, and that's, that's for somebody else. That's, that's not for me. That's not what Christ said. That's not what Christ said. One of Christ's final words to his followers before he ascended to heaven is, hey, I want you to go and to share this truth to the ends of the earth. There couldn't be more clarity than this. He's telling us what to do. It's not an option for us to say, well, maybe I'll do something with it, maybe I won't. No, the question is, how do I respond to that truth? What am I doing with that truth? And I get it that some of us have health issues and we're not able to, to go, but that's not the majority of us. It's not. And for those of us who have health issues that we're not allowed to go, we can pray to support our missionaries. We can pray to send more out. We can be praying for those that are from our church right now that are in North Africa. We can be praying for them. And let me say, if you are doing that, if you've given to those mission trips, let me just encourage you. That's amazing. You're fulfilling the truth of Christ in this moment. For those of you that have prayed diligently for our team in North Africa, praise God for that. For those of you that take those prayer cards at the back and you pray for our missionaries regularly, praise God. That's your, a piece of the part of what Christ is calling us to do. But we need to listen to his truth and respond. And when God's word tells us, do not forsake the assembling together of believers, do you look at that and say, maybe I'll gather when I want to gather, and if I don't want to gather, then I'm not going to go to church? I mean, do you look at your kingdom and your truth and say, well, I want to rest in my truth? Or do you look at what God has called us to do and say, no, God has called us to be a part of the church, 
to be in community. This is one of the reasons he created us and sustains us even to this day that we would live out his truth. So church family, let us realize that each one of these moments that we have in our lives are kingdom moments. They're kingdom moments. And we can live for our kingdom or we can live for Christ's kingdom. With the truth that Christ gives us in his word, may we live, may we listen to his word, his truth, and be obedient and respond to that truth. Lastly, I want us to see that the king gives life for the guilty. The king gives his life for the guilty. And I'm thankful, I'm so thankful this is where this section of scripture ends. Because I know that there's times I have heard the truth of God and I have rebelled against it. I have not followed the truth. I've lived for my kingdom in my own way. And that's a sad moment when you find yourself there. But there's hope in this moment. There's hope for us that are guilty of treason against the king. And it's that the king would come and he would be guilty in our place. Not because he was guilty. He was completely innocent. But so that we could go free. And this is where this passage ends. And it's extremely important that we see this. That Christ is an innocent king. He's done no wrong. And both the crowd show us the innocence of Christ and Pilate show us the innocence of Christ in this passage that we just read. The crowd rolls up on on the governor's house, rolls up on Pilate's place, and they say, Pilate, we want you to execute this man. He's guilty. And Pilate says, okay, what did he do? And they don't even have an accusation to bring against Jesus. They just say in verse 30, Man, if this man wasn't evil, then we wouldn't have brought him to you in the first place. Just trust us. Just trust us. He's a guilty man. Just trust us. And yet they have no accusation for him. It's because Christ is innocent. He's guilt-free. And Pilate sees it too. We see that in verse 29. Pilate talks to Jesus, disagrees with Jesus. I don't agree with your whole truth claims. I don't agree with this whole kingdom thing you're talking about right now. All I know is that I love my kingdom, and so I'm going to hold on to my kingdom. I don't want anything to do with you. But he walks back out, and he's like, okay, guys, I've talked to him. I've examined him. And he's not guilty. Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. And if you read all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are seven times that, that Pilate makes this claim that Jesus is innocent. That he's guiltless. There's even one time where Pilate says, all right, guys, if you're going to crucify him and you want to do that, then I'll give the order, but I'm going to wash my hands of this because he is an innocent man. It's highlighting for us this truth that the innocent king is going to stand in the place and be a substitute for the guilty one. For the guilty one. And this is what we find. They're standing there Pilate says there's no guilt in him. And the crowd says, no, we still want him crucified. So Pilate, like a good politician, is like, okay, I love my kingdom and my way. I want to hold on to all of this. And I want to also appease the people. So let's find some middle ground where I can, I can do both. So, ah, this is it. I know what's going to happen. This is the time of year at Passover where you remember the book of Exodus where God freed his people from, from Egypt There was a land that was slain so that the people didn't have to die for their sins. So what we do at this time of year, I know you guys have this tradition where you take one guilty man and you let him go free because it reminds you of the fact that you were guilty and the lamb was slain in your place. 
So Pilate's like, ah, see, see I'm going to work with their religious language, and I'm going to you know, string them along. And yet the crowd looks at him and says, no. No. We don't care if you look and say Jesus is guilty and then let him go free. No, 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 that's not what we want. We want him dead. We want him gone. We want our will and our way. We want to do whatever we can. And so give us Barabbas. That's what we want. We want Barabbas. We want this guilty man. And yet what we find is the innocent takes the place of the guilty. Christ, who has done no wrong, is going to take the place of Barabbas, the man who is called a robber in this gospel, but in others is called an insurrectionist, one who tried to rebel against Rome and take over by force. This man has already had his trial. People saw him storming in to the capital, trying to take it over. He's been arrested, tried, and he's on death row. He's going to die for his wrongs. And he's the one that goes free. He's the one that goes free. While Christ stands in his place. This is crazy to me. And yet, this is the gospel. To put this in our day and in our culture, if we were watching the news and you could turn on and see a courtroom, you see a courtroom before you, you see a man who's already been judged as guilty, his lawyers tried to plead and defend his case, and you look at this courtroom that we're all too familiar with, and yet, what you find, instead, in this moment, is the lawyer saying, I'm going to take the place of this guilty man. I'm going to go and be incarcerated for him on his behalf. And if we were to watch that on the news and to see that in a courtroom, we'd be like, what is this? What is going on right now? And that's how we should feel as we read these pages of Scripture. Why would the innocent king of all creation be a substitute for us, the guilty? The guilty. Why would he do that? And church, you have to understand this. I need you to understand this this morning. That every single one of us are Barabbas. Every one of us. Every one of us, by our nature and our nurture, are guilty sinners before God. Every single one of us are robbers, just like Barabbas trying to steal the glory of God for ourselves. Every single one of us are insurrectionists trying to remove God, pry him off his throne so that we can sit on the throne and do everything in our will and our way. And yet, Christ would look at every single one of us and say, If you believe in me, then I will stand in your place. The guiltless for the guilty. Why would God do that? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us why. It says this, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He was innocent. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. You want to know why Jesus did this? You want to know why the innocent came and stood in the place of the guilty? For your sake and for my sake. Jesus, King Jesus, sits there at that place being guilty when he was an innocent man. Why? Because he is taking our sin on him. 
This is what he's doing. This is why he goes to the cross for us. It's for us. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God so that we could go free, that we could be seen as righteous before God Almighty, not because of our good works, but because of his good work to stand in our place for our sins. This is the gospel. As confusing as it may be to us, this is the glorious truth that there was no other way by which we could be saved apart from the king who was innocent standing in the place of the guilty. So yes, we're like Barabbas. And yes, Jesus is the one that extends grace to free us. This is what Christ does on our behalf. So two points of application of belief for us as we finish today. And yes, belief is an application. This whole book of John is about you believing something because your belief shakes your action. So let's do this. First, let's believe that Christ pardons those who believe in him. Let's believe in the truth that Christ pardons those who believe in him. See, as we believe in him, Christ will be our substitute. For some of you, you may have never trusted in him. You may have grown up in the church, just like Daniel was talking about, but you haven't taken that step of faith to believe in him. That's why we celebrate baptism today. That's why we celebrate Daniel's story. Some of you are in that same place where you've heard about Christ, but you have not allowed Christ to take your place. Would you believe that Christ will take your place if you confess your sins and repent? Second, for every person in this room, every believer, let us believe in the holy justice of God. The holy justice of God. What you find in this passage is this king. And this king is a righteous king. He's an innocent king. And this king lives in justice. So he can't just look at the guilty and just say, you go free. Nobody's going to look or notice your sin. No. He sees all of our sin and all of our shame. And in his justice, he says, there has to be punishment. But it'll come down on me. For all who believe, it'll come down on me. So let us believe in both the justice and the grace of Jesus Christ today to seek and to save those who are lost. Bow your heads with me. Christ, we thank you. We thank you for this truth that you are in control in the middle of the chaos. And Lord, we confess that many of us have felt this moment of chaos in our life for months or years, or there's this turmoil within our heart. Christ, we thank you that you have come to bring peace to our chaotic heart. And we confess that one day you're going to bring peace to this chaotic world because you are the king of all kings. So we want to trust and believe in you. Christ, we thank you that you are the way and the truth and the life Thank you for the truth that you have spoken to us today. And we want to respond to it. We want to listen and obey. Not just listen and discuss or listen and debate. But Lord, help us to listen and respond and believe today. The truth that you've spoken through this passage. And Lord, we praise you. We worship you. We give to you. We spend every piece of our time and moments for you. Because you are the one who is guiltless and you stood in the place of the guilty. Christ, thank you for being our substitute. Thank you for doing what we could not do. For giving us through your grace what we could never afford. Thank you for being the king who 
came to seek and to save that which was lost. God, we worship and praise you for those truths today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Church, let us stand now and let's sing to our glorious King.